Crossway Church Sermon Audio. 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 12. Hello to everyone watching online. We love you and miss you. And hope that you have a wonderful Lord's Day. Let's pray together and then we'll move into the message this morning. Father, we bow before you. We ask that you would make every heart aware of what it means to come before God. And to recognize the privilege that we can come before you, O God, because of your Son. Jesus, we thank you and praise you. And as if this were not enough, you've given us this revelation, the Scriptures, the Bible, so that we might know who you are and how to glorify you. Please help us to grow in that today. We ask it in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. We will be participating in communion right at the end of the meeting, so if you would, please begin to prepare your hearts. God wants to meet you and work in you as you come to his table this morning. Have you ever had trouble getting someone to believe that you're telling the truth? The door frame at my parents' house has some small glass panels along the top of it. And that means that when you're inside the house and partway up the stairs to, to the second floor, you can look out and you can see through those little windows and you can see the ledge of the door frame at the top. It's sort of like a small shelf above the door. Well, a couple of years ago, I went over to my parents' house because I'm a loving and dutiful son. And after I came in, my mother came down the stairs and immediately began asking me, well, what did you do with it? And uh, she started to say things like, so you got rid of it, did you? And it all felt somewhat accusatory, I'm not going to lie. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And so after a bit of back and forth, I finally gathered that as she had ascended, ascended the stairs earlier, she had looked out, something caught her eye, she looked out, saw through those windows a large black snake lazing on that upper shelf of the door. And, are you ready for this? She assumed that I had put a fake plastic snake up there <laughs> to scare her. Me! Of all people. And then after I entered the house, and when she came downstairs, it was gone. So she, again, she, you know, she thought I was playing a trick on her. But apparently, that was a real black snake. And I had no idea it was there when I walked in right under its, you know, with my head right a few inches under it. And, uh, you know, you think about it, I could have lost my life. I could have died. And all my mother cared about was whether I was playing a trick on her or not. That's how I felt, yes. That is how. The point of the story is to raise a question for us. Which testimony do you believe? Whose story is accurate? 
What does it take for you to believe that something is true? My mother took some convincing that day. It was only after repeated protestations of my own innocence that she believed I wasn't playing games with her. And to be honest, I had to do a double take myself to believe that there was a big black snake sitting up there and I had just, uh, with inches, saved my own life by coming in the house. So in a sense, we were testifying to each other. We were witnessing uh, my to my innocence, her to the black snake, and we're testifying back and forth like that. Now that story is just a bit of fun, but really it has little significance in the scheme of things, right? But what is significant is how we reach a conclusion about what we believe to be true and the role of testimony or the role of a witness in what we believe to be true. We're doing this all the time. We tell each other things and we expect to be believed and people tell us things and they expect us to believe them. Now sometimes it's directly asserted that the Christian faith is a blind faith. You know, that someone out there asserted it and we just decided it was true. A blind faith, meaning you don't have any reason to believe. You haven't gathered any evidence. There's no logic to it. It just is faith. And sometimes that idea is verbally asserted explicitly, but most times it's simply implied that you're a little foolish to believe such a thing. But really, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I don't believe there's more evidence for anything or anyone besides the existence of God. God himself, there's more evidence for God than there is for anything. Every single thing points to him in one way or another. God is more real than any one of us, if I can put it that way. He's the starting point. Going further than that, there are mountains of evidence for Christianity. In many sermons, we touch on points of that evidence. But today, we're going to look at some specific evidence. And that evidence is the testimony of certain witnesses. These are profound testimonies. And they can establish us further in our Lord if we give them the voice in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds that they deserve. I referred to these testimonies in the plural just now, but really they are one. They come from the one. The testimony I'm referring to and that the scripture is calling you to believe is the testimony of God. It's God's testimony about himself. If I could have that First slide, please. Receive the testimony of God and enjoy life in his son. God's testifying about himself. He's witnessing to himself. Did you know that? And that testimony is clear and is profound and it's powerful and it's for you and me and anyone who's willing to listen. Receive his testimony and you'll enjoy life in his son. Now, if you're a Christian, you may think to yourself... I've already received that testimony, and so we don't need to go back over that material. 
And that's fair enough because in many ways this message is first to those who have not yet placed their trust in the Savior, in Jesus Christ. You have not yet believed the testimony of God about God. But there's more to it than that. Because as with so much glorious gospel truth, there is a past, there is a present, and there is a future application of that truth. There may well be some ways in which you are right now not receiving God's testimony about himself that can establish you and cause you to enjoy the life we have in Jesus the Son. And that's what God wants for you. And it's what he has for you. So listen closely and look further and look more closely at, examine more God's testimony about himself. There's a joy to be had, brothers and sisters, in this life that we have in Christ. And it comes as we simply receive from God his testimony to us about who he is and what he's done as we simply say, I believe God. I believe. Do you have joy in life today? Do you have joy? Then receive the testimony of God. Let's go to the scriptures. Our first point today is testimony beyond doubt. Testimony beyond doubt. So if you haven't yet already, turn to 1 John chapter 5. Let me read for you the first uh, three verses, 6, 7, and 8. Verses 6, 7, and 8. 1 John 5, 6, 7, and 8. This is he... Who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. So right off the bat, right off the bat, You're probably wondering what the water and the blood mean. What do they signify? And this is one of those notoriously difficult passages to interpret. One of the big challenges in interpreting John, what he writes, whether it's the Gospel of John or the letters of John, is the depth of his inspired writing. John is well known for using layers of meaning, sometimes referred to in this context as double entendre, although it might even be more than double. There are layers of meaning. It's rich. So you may already be thinking that the water and the blood signify baptism and communion. And John Calvin, you're in good company. John Calvin believed that. Or you may be thinking that the water and the blood signify that moment when Jesus was pierced in his side by his spear. When he was hanging on the cross right before he died, they pierced him. Or he had died. They pierced him to see if he was dead. And blood and water poured out. By the way, if you weren't thinking either of those things and you weren't thinking about this at all, it's okay, don't worry. As you get to know God's word and you grow in Christ, you're going to have these, these ideas will jump in your head. You'll learn to use scripture to interpret scripture. And so you'll see some of the connections. And you can, you can see Those two interpretations of what water and blood may be, whether it's the sacraments or whether it's the piercing of Jesus' side, there's a couple of other options as well. You can see how easily that both of those interpretations are related to the person and work of Jesus. So if we were asking John today, is that what you meant by this? I think there's a pretty good chance he would say, yes, 
but also more because of the richness of his divine, or of the inspiration that he was divinely inspired with when he wrote. Probably the best way to understand the water and the blood is not um, our sacraments of baptism and communion, although they're connected, obviously. Probably the best way to understand it is the baptism of Jesus from John the Baptist, the water, and the crucifixion that Jesus went through on the cross, the blood, water and blood. And these are basically, when you think about it, they're basically bookends. Obviously, the ministry of Jesus expands beyond that, and the gospel is even greater and encompasses those things. But when you get to the the meat of it, you're talking about the ministry of Jesus. It's basically bookends, the baptism, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and the crucifixion right there near the end of the ministry of Jesus, or the climax in many ways of the ministry of Jesus. And those bookends, the baptism and the crucifixion, they, they, they encompass the entire ministry of Jesus. They certainly include things like the resurrection and the ascension, things like the incarnation. You get the idea, but you, you understand that they're sort of like bookends. The, the water and the blood, the entire ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, the entire span of the ministry of Jesus, all that he did in those three years, approximately three years, is a witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is from God and is God and returned to God, that he lived a perfect life, sinless, and did the miracles that he did and taught the truth that he taught and died and rose again and ascended to God. That is a testimony that he's the son of God. You may even remember that Jesus himself referred to his own works, healings and exorcisms and feeding of thousands, etc., etc., as witnesses of his identity. Jesus himself referred to it that way. He said, the works testify to who I am. So some religious rulers asked Jesus to stop holding them in suspense, and they said to him, tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus answered them. He said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And after he said this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus argued with them and asked them, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said, why are you going to stone me for doing these good works that I've done? And they said, we're not going to stone you for the good works that you did, but because you make yourself God, which would be wrong for anyone else to do, but was right for him to do because he wasn't making himself God. He is God. And to that, Jesus calls on his witnesses again, his works. So uh, John 10, 37 to 38, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, in other words, his words, what he says, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And when Jesus gets down to it with his own disciples, when it's right before the crucifixion and and things are getting tense, things are getting hot, 
right before the Last Supper. Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples. He's teaching them, and, and it's, it's getting intense. Thomas says something that's somewhat doubtful, and then Philip says something that's somewhat doubtful. Philip, you may remember Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says this in John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so you see, all of Jesus' ministry, from baptism to the cross, testifies, speaks, that he is the Son of God. And at this point, you might be thinking, well, of course, but we know that God's Word is meant to be applied. And whenever you're tempted to brush past God's Word quickly. In other words, in your own devotions, when you're reading and you're like, ah, I don't think this really applies, look again. And when you're hearing a teaching, when you're hearing a sermon, and you think, well, you know, I, I, I already get that. Look again. Because God's Word is sharp and it's rich and the Holy Spirit is applying it. God's Word always gets to the heart of what we need, Right? And we should always have that growing confidence. The more we study God's word, the more we realize how immediately applicable it is to us. I see it as I, as I study the epistles and, and the writings to the churches, like this one, and think, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we experience on a regular basis. This isn't far removed from us. This is immediately applicable. Remember that situation going on in the churches John is connected to. Some of the people have split off, and they have split off for a variety of reasons. But ultimately, it's because some of them were teaching a false view of Jesus. Remember that? And they were dragging some others along with them. And this came out in various ways, and they were motivated by various things. But ultimately, it came back to the vision of who Jesus is. We are deeply theological. These folks do not believe that Jesus is who John or the church says he is. They have a different vision of him. So notice verse 6 again. Let's put it up and you can see that underline. Notice this in verse 6. Not by the water only, so not by the baptism of Jesus only, but by the water and the blood. You see that note there? You see that, that John took that moment to emphasize water and the blood? In other words, John's pointing out that the false teachers were detaching the blood part. They affirmed the water part. They were fine with the water part, but they had a real problem with the blood part. What does that mean? It means that those separating from the church were happy to believe that the divine had touched the man, Jesus of Nazareth, in some shape or form at his baptism. 
They were fine to believe that that had happened. And they were fine to believe that Jesus was especially spiritual and that he did amazing things in his ministry, that he was compassionate, that he was powerful, that he was authoritative in certain ways in his teaching, that he was uh, a sensitive in his awareness of people. They were perfectly willing to see all of that. They were fine to believe that Jesus was especially spiritual and did amazing things. But they were unwilling to believe that the Son of God had come down and given his life. Because of the sin of those he loves. They were unwilling to believe that they needed a Savior to forgive their sin. Can you see that there's nothing new under the sun? This, it just didn't compute to them. If this was true, it would say some very bad things about them, right? I mean, if we need the perfect one to die in our place, well, that's pretty bad. If that's the consequence that we deserve, you can't say anything worse about me then you deserve to die for your sin. Your crimes against God are so egregious, the only punishment that meets the crime is eternal death for you. You see, that's what that says. When we look at that cross, it's only sweet to us because we've already confessed that we recognize that we throw ourselves down in need of the mercy of God. And we acknowledge and we affirm that what it says about us is that we deserve not just execution, but eternal execution. And anyone who's trying to justify themselves cannot abide the blood In fact, there's a heresy written about that comes a bit later than the letters of John in history, a few decades later, which actually teaches that the divine came upon Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism but left before his crucifixion. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth is not the God-man who lives and dies for the sin of many and is now exalted as Lord in Christ forever. The kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. No, instead of that, Jesus of Nazareth is just a man who temporarily accesses the divine. And it's important for you and I to take this further. We can't just leave it there. God means for us to see this error, the temptation to this error, and how it could hinder life in us. And God wants us to be helped by the revelation of his scriptures. And what I mean is that people love, people love, our pride, proud hearts love a crossless Christ. 
People love a Jesus touched by the divine, but without the messy, sacrificial part. That's a Jesus they can jive with. Every other religion out there can jive with it. You can fit it together with every other religion. You can synchronize it. It's a Jesus that can mesh with whatever you want. That's a malleable Jesus that they can use to fit God into their lives, into a form that they can accept. But it's not a true Jesus, and it's not what the water and the blood and the Spirit have testified to. And here's a story. This whole idea was apparent in a conference sponsored by the World Council of Churches and underwritten in large part by the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, Presbyterian Church United States. Now, you can easily imagine that happening today, but this was further back than that. Anybody remember the 90s? (laughs) From November 4 to November 7, 1994, over 2,000 people from 49 states and 27 counties, uh, countries, excuse me, filled the Minneapolis Convention Center to re-image God. The conference called for a second reformation that would begin radical theological surgery on the church's belief systems. One speaker, Dolores Williams, did not disguise her convictions at all. I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. We just need to listen to the God within. That is no different than what they were saying in John's time, and it's no different than what they're saying today. It's no different than what our hearts are tempted to. So this is the inclination of humanity to deny that weird stuff that happens to say we have any breakdown with God whatsoever. That's just weird and strange. You know, that that idea of the Savior dying on the cross. And instead, what humanity wants to do is affirm their connection with deity, with divinity, to be spiritual and mystical. I've told you before, I'm always amazed when I listen to atheists because at some point, when you really press on them, at some point they're going to they're give you their, uh, the core of their beliefs. And without fail, you're going to hear a fervency in their voice, much like a preacher. It's going to come out of them. The system of beliefs, it's always going to be connected to some kind of Something greater, something cosmic, something divine and enlightened. Rebellious humanity loves it, loves it. But they don't love the blood. Far more important for us than seeing that sinful inclination in the world is to see it in ourselves. It creeps in wherever there's sin in our lives. It's part of what's going on in our sin, right? Because whenever we sin, what's part of our excuse? What's part of the rationale? Part of us sinning is justifying ourselves. Saying why what we're doing is not that bad. Saying why we're doing is actually right. Saying why we're doing is justified. It's right for us to do. Sin comes with its own rationale and justification. And in doing that, you know what what part of what's going on there? We're like, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, God's good. But you know what we're denying? We're denying the need for the blood. We're denying the testimony of the blood. 
that we're sinners in need of mercy, and that we should not dare try to justify ourselves, because the only way for us to be justified is in Christ Jesus. You see, we have the opportunity right now, even in the areas where we're sinning, to tune our hearts to to our true condition and receive the mercy of God in the blood of Jesus Christ. We need a cross. We need mercy. And we should humble ourselves to receive it. One of the best pictures of this, of of that right posture, is that story of the Pharisee and the tax collector from uh, Luke chapter 18. You remember they go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee is proud, recounting his spiritual deeds. But the tax collector will not even lift his eyes up but turns his head to the ground because he knows he's not worthy and he asks for mercy. And you know what Jesus says when he tells that story? He says he's the one, the humble one, the one that knows he needs mercy. He's the one that goes away justified, justified. The role of the Holy Spirit is profound here too. The Spirit clearly operates to testify about Jesus from his baptism, through his ministry, through his crucifixion. That's why John writes that these three are testifying, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And they all agree. You may remember the standard of testimony throughout scriptures is two or three witnesses, right? You have to have two or three witnesses. You can't convict someone based on one witness. If you do, it's unjust. And so here we have more than one witness. We have three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit. And all of these testify to who Jesus is and what he's done. You could even say that this is God testifying to himself. Receive the testimony of God and enjoy life in his son. Well, We looked at testimony beyond doubt. Let's look at the witness within. Let's look at the witness within. And uh, let me read the rest of the passage for you. So take your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 5, look at verses 9 to 12. And let's look at the witness within. John 1 John 5, verses 9 to 12. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Remember earlier when we talked about what a standard of testimony it would take for you to accept that testimony as credible. That meets the threshold of credibility. Well, here we are directly confronted with that question again. If ever you would or have at any time accepted the testimony of another person as credible, so you accepted the testimony of a human as credible, 
you thought, well, of all the people I know and of all the situations, this person, I ascribe to them validity, credibility. I believe they're being honest. I believe they're telling the truth. If you ever did that with a person, well, then you must accept that God's testimony is true. Why? Well, it's obvious because God is above us. And so what God testifies to is even more true than anything you or I think to be true. What do you think to be true? Good. Well, if God testifies to something, if God says something is true, it is even more true than the truest thing that you think you can count on. And this goes for any humanly testimony, whether it's testimony in general, like your friend telling you something that they heard or witnessed, or whether it's more specific, like John himself testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, as good as that is. Because John is in in the middle, when he's writing this, he's in the middle of suffering for that testimony. And people generally don't suffer for things that they believe to be lies. As good as that is, God's testimony about himself is greater And it must be seen as entirely credible and valid. And I understand that this can feel like a bit of a logical problem at first. And we just need to think it through a little bit. Because John is saying essentially that God is testifying to truth about himself. And that may seem to us to be circular. Because after all, if someone here, if another human is accused of serious wrongdoing, we don't necessarily simply accept their own testimony about themselves. Because we weren't there. We didn't see it for ourselves. And all we have is their testimony about it. Well, it raises some questions. You know, did you shake down the shop owner? No, of course not. I'm a sweet guy. I would never do such a thing. Oh, okay. That doesn't really cut the mustard in the courtroom, right? But this is different when it comes to God. Because life comes from God. And therefore, so does every other virtue, every other bit of righteousness. So do truth, so do justice. All virtues, all sense of morality. It comes from God because God is at the top of the reality chain. What he says is right. He's not fickle like us. He doesn't change his standards from day to day. He doesn't bend his virtues a bit so that he can still fit into them like a middle-aged man trying to squeeze into size 33 waist. Which, by the way, I'm still a 33 waist. Though you might not want to believe my testimony on that. To put it simply, we must have God at the top of the reality chain. We must have him as the beginning of all and the end of all. If not, nothing else in all existence makes any sense. You can't even have logic without God at the beginning and God at the end. And if we pretend he's not there, as many people try to do in life, they try to ignore him, they try to avoid him, oh, there's, always, there's always some deep hurt inside of them, some deep brokenness. If you could just get at it, you would see it. Many people today try to disacknowledge the reality of the existence of God. And when they try to do that, when they pretend that he's not there. We throw ourselves into confusion 
and despair and cannot make any sense of reality. And you watch people, you see them in their confusion and their despair trying to make sense of reality and striving and striving and never getting there. And of course they can't because they don't accept the testimony of God about God. The Scriptures teach us God does not, He cannot lie, He will not lie. And yet, even though in Himself His testimony is ultimate, as we just talked about, He actually gives us more than Himself. He gives us the Spirit, and the, although that's Himself, He gives us the water and the blood. He gives us John, He gives us the testimony of so many. And he goes beyond that too. He puts a testimony in us, a witness inside of us that we cannot deny. You see, there's no greater testimony about anything than there is about Jesus the Christ. Let me make a small change of gears as we move into the next portion here. I've learned a lot. People give TV a bad rap. I've learned a lot from watching movies over the years. So for instance, I've watched a few cowboy movies. I, I should, kids, I'm not saying watch more TV. Let me just qualify this. I'm just setting up what I'm saying here. That's all I'm doing. I've watched a few cowboy movies over the years and I learned something from cowboy movies. I learned something important. Probably the worst thing you can do to someone, you know, it's not to shoot them or to steal from them. It's not to hang them on the gallows. The worst thing you can do to someone is to call them a liar. Right? Are you calling me a liar? <laughs> right, right? It's the worst thing you can do. And it probably is one of the worst things you could do to someone. To be a liar means you are fundamentally not who you present yourself to be. You are, in essence, not trustworthy. And there are a few things more despicable than being a liar. To be fraudulent at that level. To be a phony. And yet we've all lied, haven't we? God, have mercy on us. God has had mercy on us. Look at verse 10 again in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got it on the screen for you. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So first note that when you trust Jesus, you end up with the testimony about Jesus inside, inside who you are. The essence of who you are is fundamentally changed, right? You're now a new creature in Christ. And part of being a new creature in Christ is you have this internal witness of the Spirit of God. And you have your own experience now of the water and the blood, you know what Jesus has done for you and the sins you've been forgiven of, don't you? 
There's nothing more satisfying than walking in truth with the Lord. The Holy Spirit connects your faith and with God and, and yourself and you are now consistent with God and what he says about you and what he says about reality and what he says about life. It sets everything in order. But notice this equation too that we see in the text here. To not believe in Jesus equals calling God a liar. You see that? That's the opposite place that you want to be. Instead of satisfaction or walking in harmony with God's world, you're now in dissonance. There's a continual irritation of soul. There's going to be anxiety. There will be hatred. There will be malevolence inside. Why? Because not believing is not a passive thing that happens to you. It's not like you're, it's not like you're saying, well, I just, you know... I just, I, this, this unbelief that comes from outside of me and it impresses itself on me. And, I, 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 and that's just the way it is. No, you see, unbelief, even though it's the natural state of humanity, it bubbles up from inside. And it's active. It's active and it's purposeful and it's powerful and it's insidious. And the unbeliever in his unbelief calls the testimony of God about God false. And is thus saying to God, you're a liar, God. That is a frightening place to be. And such were we all. And if that's where you are today, God wants to call you out of it. He confronts you with his testimony about himself, about his son. Today's the day to trust him. Such were we all. And such do we all continue to struggle with to some degree. We are not yet perfected. We are continually being called to trust the Savior. And we're continually being tempted to diminish our need for the blood of Christ, that forgiveness. We're continually, uh, uh, oftentimes we talk about the idea of keeping the gospel at the center of who we are. Being gospel-centered, keeping Christ at the center. This is the same or a very similar idea. We're tempted to diminish our need for the blood of Jesus Christ. We're tempted to, to, to say, okay, I've got the divine now. I no longer need mercy. None of us would come out and say, oh, I don't need mercy anymore. But how often do we act like we no longer need mercy? As if we never need forgiveness for wrongdoing. We know that's not true. And a little examination, we'll see again our need for the blood of Christ. And we'll cry for mercy. And you know what? Because Jesus gave himself on the cross, you know what we'll receive? We'll receive the mercy of God in the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's where we need to stay. That's where we need to live. As people, yes, whose eyes go up and worship to God, but whose eyes also go down and say, God, I need your mercy so that we go away justified in Christ Jesus. 
day by day. You see, if we're not careful and we move away from our need for the blood, we move away from our confession of our sinfulness and the grace of God in Christ Jesus, if we're not careful, there are times that Christians can still live life as if God is a liar. We don't want to do that. That should chagrin us. That should shame us. That should pain us, the thought that we would live life as if God is a liar. And that's why John is writing to the church so that we don't stay in that place, that we don't get deceived by those that are doing that, and that we don't stay in that place. God is not lying to you. He sent his son who gave himself for you. And believing in the son brings the greatest benefits at all. Look again at verses 11 to 12. I'll put it up on the screen here. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Have you ever noticed that often when I'm preaching and I call the unbeliever to trust Jesus, I'll mention a few specific things. And it might seem repetitive at times to you. And I I understand that. But it's important. And maybe I don't say it every time, but oftentimes. And I try to vary it a little bit so that people aren't just entirely bored. For instance, I'll usually call folks to trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. And I'll call them to repent of sin. So trust Jesus, repent of sin, and I'll usually connect it to baptism. Repent of sin and be baptized. Why? Because that's the way the apostles called people to repent of sin and trust Jesus. They said repent and be baptized. So when you and I share Christ Jesus, we ought to call people to repent and be baptized. Connect that important response, that outward response of repentance to the call to repent. So we should connect repentance and baptism in our proclamation of the gospel. I'm also usually going to tell people about some benefit of trusting Jesus, right? So obviously the forgiveness of sin. His blood covers our sin. And there's also the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, you trust Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. That's incredibly glorious. And there's also, among other gifts, the one we're driving at right now, the gift of eternal life. You trust Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You get eternal life. You see that here in this passage up on the screen. It's a gift that God gives to those who trust his son. And we typically think of eternal life as life after death. And that is right. And that is glorious. And we often ought to think of it. And I personally, I'm sure along with you, cannot wait for the end of the age and for the new age to come and that eternal life to begin in that sense. But eternal life is not just life after death. And it's not just life in the age to come. Eternal life is life as it was meant to be, as God made it to be, as it ought to be, as it should be. Eternal life is something that Christians have right now. 
We're not saying, when we say that, we have eternal life right now, that you receive the gift of eternal life and that it, it comes into your life right now. We're not saying that we'll never die. Obviously, we die. What we're saying is that the life we now in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. And that there's far more to this life right now because it's eternal right now. That even if we die, we live. Simply staying alive in this body is not the ultimate value of life. Why? Because life is far more than life in this body. Life in this body is good. We don't take it for granted. But the life that God gives, which this life in this body is only a shadow of, is far greater. The life that God gives is far greater, far deeper. And it is in reality eternal. And we have it right now. And it cannot be taken away from us. It's a light that shines past the darkness of a physical death. And part of what we Christians, those that have the Son and His eternal life, part of what we are doing right now is learning those depths, learning the heights, learning the breadth, learning the glories, the reality of that eternal life that we have in Christ Jesus. Receive the testimony of God and enjoy life in His Son. I want to ask John, the band, to come. And we're going to partake here in just a moment. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Now remember last week, when through the scriptures, Steve exhorted us to lay hold of Christ. Well, there's a similar dynamic today. It shouldn't surprise us because that passage precedes this one and so it's contextual. It's the same kind of idea. We are those that have Jesus already, but the Lord prompts us to strengthen our grip on him. And so let's do this exercise again using today's passage. All right? So let's take a moment and do an exercise and application. Think of something in your world where when you think of that, you dread it. And so in essence, when you're in that thing, that situation, that event, that difficulty, whatever that might be, you, you don't enjoy life. It doesn't seem like eternal, the gift of eternal life that we have in the sun. But it's the opposite. We dread it. We would rather anything other than that thing. In that moment, it feels like life has drained out of us, that there is no life in that. Think of that thing. Get it in your mind's eye. You got that thing there. That situation. Looming. Instead of eternal life, it feels like eternal death. Now take the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what you know to be true, and receive God's firm testimony about that, that that is who the Lord is and what He's done. He died for your sin. His blood shed for you. 
And after he was buried, it wasn't the end. He took his life up again. And now, he gives the gift of that eternal life to you. Hold that next to that thing that seems like eternal death. Now, what does Jesus Christ, what does his death and resurrection say about that thing? See, purposefully make this your filter. And look at that situation. All of a sudden, that thing, because Jesus died for your sin and took it away and gave you eternal life and you've got that life now, that thing isn't as dominant as it once was, not as dark. That thing's not eternal death. That thing is a blip on the screen. You have every reason to have hope. Your eternal life is going to shine right through that. In fact, that thing becomes the opportunity for you to live out the death and the life of Christ in your life. That thing becomes the opportunity for you to know His grace that thing becomes the opportunity for you to lay hold again of Jesus Christ and the testimony of God about your Savior. That's what happens to that thing. And today, when you come to the Lord's table and as you partake, receive once again the strong, firm, unsurpassable testimony of God the water, the blood, and the Spirit. The testimony of God to Himself. Let God apply His gospel to that place where you feel the opposite of life. And you're going to know the life of the Son. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to read the passage and pray. And the ushers will release your row one, by, one at a time and we'll partake together as we sing our praises. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, you give testimony to yourself. The fact that you are life and love. That you sent your son as a sacrifice for us. We acknowledge and receive that testimony so that the Lord of life would reign in us and stamp out anywhere, anywhere where we may not uphold your truthfulness, O God. And so that we may delight in the life of Christ, which is eternal. Jesus, please come and meet us as we come to your table. 
Bless us by your Spirit, we ask. Bless these elements, we ask, in your precious name. Amen. Let's partake. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.